Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Welcome to Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, a podcast series devoted to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a range of media, and focused on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors about how and why they use multimodal approaches, and we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. In this week's episode, I sit down with Andy Harper, a visiting assistant professor in the English department, to talk about his upcoming fall course on spies and secret societies in American literature. All right, welcome to another episode of Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina. I am here with Andy Harper. Andy, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Sheila. That's right. I'm Andy Harper. I am a new faculty member in English, uh, studying 19th and 20th century American literature and teaching a little bit of creative writing. Uh, So we are here today to talk about a 4,000 level class that you will be teaching in the fall, uh, which there's already been a lot of really great buzz and student interest in. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about kind of the name of that class, um, how you went about designing this course, and what drew you to the topic? Yeah, so the course is called Spies and Secret Societies in American Literature. Um, I come to it by way of, of some of my research interests. Of course, research always informs teaching. Teaching informs research. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a better writer and thinker, I think, when I'm, when I'm teaching. And I, I like to think I'm a better teacher when I'm uh, coming in with some, some questions that, that draw me in uh, in a number of directions. So um, this course comes a little bit out of a paper that I've been working on for the last year focused on the role and and image and sort of like figure of secret societies in utopian fiction, and in particular, uh, black authored utopian literature, especially Sutton Griggs's Imperium and Imperio, uh, which students from my my last fall class will will know and and hopefully, um, you know, remember fondly. Um, Yeah, so I started from the place of of being interested in in this particular text that that I've been focusing on for, for the past year. Um, interested in the the role of this figure that is the the secret society. Um, I'm interested in in precisely sort of how this figure functions, how the secret society functions in a particular kind of uh, literary mode, in a particular kind of of sort of like political imagination, and all the other questions that kind of uh, become part of my conception of this class spin out of that. So starting from from Sutton Griggs and thinking about the Imperium and Imperio, which is a, a secret society that rises up in educational institutions across the South um, in, the, in the novel, leads me to this question of, okay, what else is happening with secret societies in, in literature around this time? So it makes me think about uh, white secret societies operating in texts like Sister Carrie and the Princess Casamassima. So I, I want to hang out with Henry James and, and Theodore Dreiser. Um, but part of what I, I also suggest, and maybe it's not the center of the argument, but something that I suggest in this paper that I've been working on is the role of a particular kind of utopian thought or, or, uh, or utopian ethos in other, um, in other writing and especially black writing from, from this moment. So I start to look outward for how does this appear in uh, the works of, say, W.E.B. Du Bois or Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. And so a, a list starts to come together in, in this way. So I've got a stack of books that's just been sitting on my table for an embarrassing period of time. Um, and from that, I start to say, okay, what, what holds these books together? If I were going to teach a class on this, what might I call it? And so um, I've sort of landed on spies and secret societies. And, and from that theme or from that title, 
um, the reading list has just exploded. And so I've gone through in the past year uh, these this series of sort of expansions and, and contractions of thinking what all might make its way onto such a reading list um, and how I might kind of narrow it back down. So that's been sort of my process. Uh, yes, the, the tried and true pedagogical uh, uh, practicum of steering very thoughtfully at large piles of books <laughs> as you make as you make a list of uh, favorites um, or kind of recalibrate reading lists. So your course description for the fall uh, mentions these uh, these figures, you know, like literary lady bosses, you say the, the socially mobile women of fraternity fiction, um, as well as, as you said earlier um, in this episode, narratives of white supremacy and black resistance from slave narratives to historical novels. Um, so how might these figures or narratives, how, how do you think that you, this course is going to be challenging kind of your students' initial understanding um, of what a spy is or does? I was definitely thinking about kind of the spy narratives that I encountered as a child um, or uh, a young adult, right? The kind of assumption that spy narratives are kind of James Bond or a lot of, uh, you know, uh, white British or American men, right? Sitting around in smoky rooms, you know, uh, talking about kind of nuclear disarmament or uh, super villains. Yeah, I think that's right. That's I, we think immediately of of James Bond. We think of maybe you know any number of of John le Carre uh, Cold War spy dramas um, and and recent uh, film adaptations, perhaps. And I think there is just such a a long legacy and such a tradition on you know the other side of the pond of of spy writing and secret societies. Um, even thinking back to some of my graduate coursework, the the good sort of 17th and 18th century, you know, British satire and these sort of worlds of, of texts and, and paratexts uh, where we have someone like a Swift or a Pope talking about the, the secret club of, of satirists in, in some, you know, some poem and then maybe writing a, an anonymous letter reviewing his own poem and, and all of this, this weird stuff that's kind of happening um, in that context. One of the guiding questions, I think, for this class is going to be, what do these figures look like in an American imagination? Which I sort of understand as being like really a 19th century Americanist kind of question. Of like, okay, what do we, what do we inherit from our kind of colonial parent uh, figure of, of England? And, and what do we do with it? And what makes our version an American version? Um, but that becomes kind of my, my guiding question. Okay, so if spies are, are James Bond, and James Bond is sort of quintessentially English, what is, what is an American spy? Who is an American spy? And so that's where I want to kind of begin. And I think, of course, it does look different from, from James Bond. Yeah, so is there a particular figure in this course that you think kind of serves as, as a kind of anti-James Bond or a figure that you're particularly excited to teach that you think kind of offers this, um, uh, both an understanding right, of this legacy of, of what we are taking right, um, from our colonial past, but also the, the ways in which some of the figures that you're tracking kind of disrupt those assumptions of, of what spies or secret societies do or look like? Yeah, I think, you know, I don't know about an anti-James Bond necessarily. That's, that's a good question. Um, but one of the first places maybe that my imagination goes is in thinking about maybe something like a like spies for the Union Army. There's you know what's uh, you know, moving moving to that American context. Um, we might think of someone like Harriet Tubman as being the most famous American spy, somebody who who served as a spy for the Union Army, but but also was this um, important figure in a a sort of broad secretive network of of freedom fighters. And so one of the texts I'm excited to introduce into this class is Francis Ellen Watkins Harper's Iola Leroy, or Shadows Uplifted, which is in part a, a narrative of just that, of um, a titular character a 
and a, a kind of a, a network of, of intellectuals and, and community leaders who are a part of this, um, this uh, liberation movement, sort of beginning before and, and during the Civil War uh, with the exchange of coded messages um, between sort of Union uh, operatives and enslaved populations. Um, and, and then moving into, moving this kind of network or this kind of organizing into a post-war period, into like a reconstruction era period and thinking about what, you know, what organizing and what a kind of black futurity is going to look like um, after that moment and, and maybe even after reconstruction. No, that sounds so interesting and important, especially, I mean, like I think centering Harriet Tippin, both both in thinking about kind of black resistance and spycraft in the United States, but also, you know, espionage is not a genre that traditionally has centered uh, women as spies <laughs> at all. You know, usually uh, usually when I think of kind of uh, early, early um, espionage, even stuff, you know, like the uh, Scarlet Pimpernel, which I had to read in high school, um, you know, usually kind of women are corollaries or or kind of objects kind of within spycraft narratives, unless you're something like a, like a femme fatale. Um, I'm also really uh, really interested in this idea of kind of different different kinds of kind of cryptography or kind of shibboleths um, used in spycraft in a particularly American way have you encountered um, in these um, in these journeys kind of of uh, especially kind of black resistance in the United States um, are there kind of alternate traditions um, of uh, the ways in which um, uh, they would kind of code or decode or pass around messages um, that we might not have encountered in in a kind of uh, more kind of Eurocentric kind of or, or white history of um, espionage and secret societies. Yeah, in my ethnic American literature course this semester, we're um, sort of working around this theme of language, form, and ethnic difference in American literature. Is my kind of my um, uh, my subtitle, and so we talk. We've talked just a little bit about like uh, signifying in in African American literature, um, and uh, you know we read uh, Charles Chestnut. Uh, and, and the Conjure Tales. We'll read the Marrow of Tradition in this Spies and Secret Societies course, but in reading the Conjure Tales, you know, we talk about kind of the way that Julius speaks in, in dialect, which can read one way to part of his audience and can read a very different way to another part of his audience. So that's, that's maybe a way of, of getting into thinking about coded messages. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm not, it won't come through, I think, quite as fully in, in this topics course as it does in my... Um, in my course this semester. So it's possible when I pull in the Marrow of Tradition that there's just, there is just a little bit of dialect uh, happening in the Marrow of Tradition. I'm not sure, um, well actually, and, and actually now that I, the more that I, I start to think about it, uh, there's a great, um, it's a great work, a great like really long scholarly work that I could never uh, ask students to read um, that, that does read a character in the Marrow of Tradition, sort of a long, uh, or, or a a, a portion of the Marrow of Tradition and sort of the, the process of the cakewalk as, as a kind of um, a coded and, and performative act uh, akin to um, dialect and akin to a kind of uh, a particular kind of, of coding. Um, so that, that could actually come in now that, it, now that I'm thinking about it. I'm not sure that's a good answer for, uh, you know, for, the, <laughs> for this context or not, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's got me thinking. Thanks. 
No, and I, th- I think it folds really well. So the next question I was going to ask you is thinking about, you know, obviously on this podcast, we talk a lot about um, teaching rhetoric and composition, particularly teaching English 1900, which you now have a background in. Um, uh, though, of course, your uh, th- this upcoming 4000 course is a lit course. Um, I wonder if you could talk uh, kind of broadly about some of the ways that narratives of spycraft in various forms um, are also narratives about uh, rhetorical subterfuge, right, or the infiltration of particular discourse communities, right? So what do spy narratives teach? us about the use or importance of rhetoric as as a kind of tool of deception um, or a method of leveraging power? I think generally when I'm teaching literature and especially teaching literature in in a historical context and my topics course will be focused on this uh, late 19th and early 20th century period, um, you know, I think of as as the long Gilded Age, but which we might also call the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, we might think of as as being sort of um, you know, or I'm, I'm kind of invested in thinking of this as being particularly post-Haymarket, um, but also sort of pre-19th Amendment, uh, also post-Reconstruction and pre-Harlem, something like an American age of, of empire. Um, and in, in writing into and, and reading into that moment, I think one of the questions I'm immediately interested in asking alongside this literature is, is one about you know, a kind of political imagination. What is the political imagination of this moment? What are we capable of, of, of imagining? Um, where is our ma- imagination drawn? Uh, whether, you know, in a, in a very conscious way or perhaps even in, in kind of a subconscious way. Um, and so the study of literature for me is always this kind of question of, uh, you know, what, what was a part of or what fit into the political imagination of a particular moment and how does that you know, maybe lead us into or, or sort of like give birth to a, a later kind of cultural and, and political reality and even the one that we inhabit right now. Um, so I think that is, uh, th- that is where I think maybe a, a kind of a rhetorical study or thinking about how these texts function rhetorically is that they allow us to, um, to perhaps imagine a particular kind of change, um, to imagine a particular kind of uh, of organization and a particular kind of, um, you know, uh, collective, you know, construction or, or collective um, understanding of, of ourselves as, as, you know, as a, a body, um, perhaps. Yeah, and I, I know you mentioned earlier that you're, you're particularly thinking about these texts as um, utopian, which is, I think, a word that we don't often associate with narratives of spycraft um, and secret societies. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit in this historical moment, kind of what, um, when we think about kind of the, the placidness of these narratives around um, the particular kind of legal or temporal or political markers that you mentioned, um, like the 19th Amendment or Haymarket, could you talk a little bit about what is utopian about these texts? Yeah, there's a way that uh, I, I bring maybe a, a utopian view to, to texts that might not immediately fit into this realm of, of utopian literature. Certainly Imperium and Imperio I, does, does sort of like fit the, the mold of being um, formally a, a utopian text to the extent that it is formally, you know, anything, to the extent that it can be pinned down formally as, as anything. Um, but I'm interested in sort of like a, a utopian outlook or a utopian ethos that I think is important to a broad range of, of literature at this historical moment that is interested in thinking about what um, sort of what what can be or expanding the the possibility of what can be that is interested in sort of um, speculating about what a, a particular political future might look like. So I think to the extent that we see characters coming together in many of these classes, or excuse me, in many of, in many of these novels and uh, and and organizing and and imagining um, 
a, a world that is going to look different. And in some ways, so, you know, working for that, uh, that there's the, the sort of the large um, colloquium at the end of Iola Leroy, that there's a, an underground organization um, in the Princess Casamassima, um, that we have, of course, this, this shadow government in Imperium and Imperio. To the extent that we have collectivities forming, that these are, are narratives of collectivities sort of forming and organizing toward a particular kind of future or, or vision of the future, um, there's something utopian happening in all of them. Um, in some cases, the utopia is sort of quashed. In some cases, the utopia is, is very, um, you know, framed very critically, perhaps very suspiciously. Um, but I think there's, you know, there's something to pull out at least, at least to that extent. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm struck by kind of the parallels that we see now to kind of labor movements um, or uh, protests, right, in the United States, the ways in which um, those are not usually connected to a literary history of what we would consider spies or secret societies, um, but have kind of similar uh, utopian aims, right, or frame kind of this coming together um, as, a, as a hopeful project rather than, um, I think, when we tend to kind of look back at an alternative archive of um, spies or secret society literature it tends to be kind of much more of a, a paranoia or a dystopian uh, view, right, of those secret societies. Um, I know right now, actually, I'm teaching a, 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 a class on medieval and early modern drama and transgression and crime, and, and we're reading this play um, about witchcraft, about some of the witch trials in um, the early 17th century in England. Um, and uh, they're... they're um, their kind of long history and especially kind of the flexibility of the term witch hunt, of course, in our particular political atmosphere um, and the ways in which that is used kind of fairly, fairly flexibly um, in a way perhaps it shouldn't. Um, but 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 I'm really interested in how you see kind of the the parallels of this class um, and, and the secret societies of this historical moment to our present day. That's such a great connection. Um... I was actually wondering whether witchcraft could kind of fit into uh, the discussion of this class. Um, and I think maybe I just really wanted an excuse to teach Rosemary's baby. Um, <laughs> right? The secret sort of, you know, coven of, of witches. Um, that's, that seems really important. I, I don't know how well that fits in with, uh, with, with your stuff, too. Yeah, I mean, like, we're talking a lot about... Um, both kind of the the cultural imaginaries of witchcraft um, as kind of this this uh, uh, super organized kind of uh, sexualized kind of group right that um, de were deployed right to, for for various purposes but usually right um, as as a kind of um, imagined assault right on on patriarchal authority that was of course uh, mostly uh, kind of imaginatively constructed so we're talking a little bit about uh, McCarthyism right and the kind of uh, the history of those kind of um, searches or the kind of the constructions of paranoia um, in in a kind of defense of uh, uh, political conservatism. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, like I would love to teach Rosemary's <laughs> in my course, so maybe we just have kind of dual desires here. Um, but yeah, when it comes to uh, other kind of conversations about uh, either organizing or secret societies in contemporary America, do you see kind of other potential parallels um, that might might crop up in this class? Yeah, McCarthyism, speaking of famous American spies or, or a spy sort of, um, you know, a spy thinking or a spy sort of subjectivity. Um, but yeah, I like the, the parallels that you're drawing. I think I'm, I'm, you know, very much on board with looking at the Gilded Age, looking at the present moment, a particular kind of uh, political organization and protest um, and, and labor action uh, sort of unites the, the Gilded Age and Progressive Era to our own, perhaps, um, 
also expanding socioeconomic inequality might connect something a moment like the Gilded Age to our own. Um, but I think too, the, the Gilded Age and Progressive Era is this moment that secret societies are exploding in the United States, that secret organizations like the Elks and the Freemasons, Gilded Age and Progressive Era become this moment that membership in secret fraternal organizations is absolutely exploding. So that by the 1920s, nearly half of the American adult population uh, belonged to a, a fraternal organization like the Elks or the, or the Freemasons. Other last things um, you would like to talk about this class questions I have not asked you thus far? I did not prepare questions that I, that I wanted you to ask me, but it did occur to me, um, thinking of one of the questions you asked, uh, particularly where you referenced McCarthy. Um, there's maybe a, there's there's maybe room even in in the reading list that I'm kind of working on for this class, but but certainly even you know beyond that context for thinking about the ways that spies and secret societies also become these figures of an anxiety about surveillance. Um, so there's great work on that too that I think will will come into um, into play and into the discussion, particularly of of Henry James, um, the fear of spies, the spies who are maybe not actually there, um, but but are you know, imagined. The people who may or may not be spies, the people who are probably not spies, um, the people who might turn out to be spies. Right, yeah, we've been talking a lot about, and obviously this is very, very uh, prevalent in 17th century witchcraft trials. Yeah, yeah the fictional construction of, uh, of of secret societies, right, or the, or the surveilling other that is that used as a kind of um, uh, a justification, right, for, for lashing out. So obviously this was uh, quite violent um, during the witchcraft trials um, in England, but also in McCarthyism, yeah, the, the uh, blacklisting, right, or, or the kind of uh, spread paranoia um, that there is this kind of uh, wide underground network, right, of, of secret communist or communist sympathizers and the ways in which that term communist becomes kind of so baggy and Velcros onto um, other types of uh, identities or qualities right that 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 group also found um undesirable quote unquote right or or anxiety provoking is is it's a really interesting to watch spread right in both historical periods yeah and i mean there are anxieties around that even you know even now for for our colleagues at other institutions certainly um working with with technology like zoom and uh and panopto um you know, these, these surveillance anxieties become, <laughs> become very much a part of like professional conversations. If you're uh, on, on like email lists or pandemic pedagogy groups. Um, and even here in, in St. Louis, I think the, um, I'm, I'm not as, as read up on this as I should be, but there's the, the kind of co controversy around the use of, uh, of drones by, by St. Louis police, um, which has been, uh, you know, a, a conversation that I've, that I've just heard snippets of, but, but, can't say, um, can't say too much about. As somebody who controls a fleet of drones, <laughs> I actually do have, you know, when we were, when we started using these for uh, student footage, you know, I have to talk to students and say like, okay, here are the rules, right? You cannot film people. Like, you know, if you are getting kind of overhead footage, it cannot be over large crowds, right? Because that is a violation of their privacy, right? Um, obviously there are um, uh, FSA rules when it comes to how high they can fly. Um, but I'm very aware of somebody who I, I like to think like does creative and non-surveillance things with drones. I'm very aware of the presence of drones, um, especially around kind of SLU's campus, right, which is um, uh, 
very much kind of in the middle of the city um, and the ways in which uh, the the significance of drones um, to uh, to someone like me who is using them in a tech lab right for student projects um, is going to register very differently in comparison to um, somebody whose history with drones is usually probably through police surveillance right in which a drone is is an object right of, of fear or anxiety. Yeah, I'm going to have to talk with you about how uh, <laughs> how my students can use drones for <laughs> for spy writing. I have so many ideas. <laughs> you know me. I'm always excited. I'm always excited to use the drones in in um, extremely uh, respectful ways towards uh, towards the greater population. But um, yeah, um, I think th there's there's so much interesting kind of uh, conversations coming out now around. Um, you know, pandemic pedagogy, what it's like to teach um, and have kind of so much um, content of your class kind of available for that as being recorded or viewed, right? The ways in which that um, absolutely um, affects kind of precarious uh, students and and uh, instructors um, in very different ways. Um, and so, yeah, this 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 question, right, of um, of surveillance or paranoia, right, is absolutely, I feel like, really tied into a lot of conversations we're having now about what the long impacts will be, right, of uh, of kind of uh, Zoom instruction, right, of hybrid instruction, um, what uh, kind of what those long-term effects will be when it comes to the possibilities for surveillance. But thank you and best of luck in the fall semester. I look forward to seeing kind of how, how it pans out. Me too, and I look forward to talking about it. Thanks so much. Involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment or tool, or to pitch an interview, please contact me at sheila.corsi at slu.edu. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina.